Hi friends, this is Matthew J. DiStefano, author of Heretic from the Blood of Abel and your favorite co-host of the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. Now here's Jason Elam. My guest this week really needs no introduction to this audience. We are so grateful to welcome back my friend Keith Giles, who is the author of the Amazing Jesus Un series. He's a co-host of the Heretic Happy Hour podcast, also a co-host of Apostates Anonymous, and has a brand new book releasing, um, that seems to happen about once a week for Keith. <laughs> Solo Mysterium, celebrating the beautiful uncertainty of everything. I keep hearing from so many people, and I agree, this book is a game changer. It's a totally different Keith Giles. Mm-hmm. If Keith Giles' books in the past have not been your taste, uh, you need to pick this one up because this is a completely different take on spirituality from Keith Giles. I'm very excited. I loved the Jesus Sun series. That was right up my alley. <laughs> but Sola Mysterium uh, takes us in a whole new direction. And I cannot wait to discuss this new direction with my friend, Keith Giles. Welcome back, brother. Jason, man, thank you so much. I appreciate the chance to come back on here and talk about this book. And hey, you're going through all my little podcasts. Like we were, we were you said before we hit record, like I'm practically a co-host of this podcast. So <laughs> I, could, I could add that to my list here. <laughs> yes, please do. I would love that. Um, all right, man. So the last time we talked, uh, you had finished up the Jesus Un series and you were talking about possibly writing a fiction book next. Yep. And now Sola Mysterium is about to be released. So what happened that led you in a different direction? Well, honestly, I have been wanting to write this book uh, for a long time. I, in fact, I would have put this book out before uh, the Jesus Unarmed, which is the final book in the Jesus Un series. Um, I was, so as I was writing Jesus Unarmed, this book was like hanging over my head, like hurry up and finish so you can jump into this book, right? Yeah. So I really, really wanted to write it. And uh, like you said, it is a game changer for, for me personally, because as, uh, as you mentioned, it's, it, it's to me the natural progression out of, you know, everything that I covered in the Jesus Sun series. But I mean, you make a good point. I, I, I know for a fact there are people who loved the Jesus Sun series who are going to read this one and it's going to scare them. <laughs> They're going to be like, um, Keith, what are you doing? Uh, and so I, I understand that. I mean, I think that's, a little bit the danger of writing a book that kind of takes this, this different, uh, direction. And, and, uh, but I can't help that. You know what I mean? I I know I'm going to leave some people behind. They're going to say, well, Keith, I'm not ready for that yet. Or that's not where I'm at. And that's fine. But I, but at the same time, I know I'm going to pick up people who are going to read this and go, yes. Okay. This is, this is, this makes sense to me. And I just have to go with it. Right. I can't control that. So this is, um, I just have to put it out there. And this is kind of where I'm at personally right now. So we were having a podcast team meeting last weekend, and we were talking about the natural progression of deconstruction, spiritual evolution, whatever you want to call it. It just seems like when it's honest and sincere, it do, there's not like a comfortable stopping place where you stop growing or stop evolving. It's like this continual process. And so when I read Solo Mysterium, it was like, yeah, this is... Of course, this this is just the natural progression of where Keith has been and and where he's going. Um, is that how it feels to you? Yeah. Oh no, it really does, Jason. I so, I mean, I guess I feel like 
I had to write that Jesus Sun series, you know what I mean? I, I, I Just for, again, for myself, I had to process like, well, but what, what do I believe about penal substitution? And let me just think this through and then, you know, help other people that are wrestling with this. And then, you know, inerrancy of scripture or politics or, you know, uh, the second coming or hell or whatever. So those are necessary um, conversations and, and processes that I had to go through and that I wanted to, you know, help other people go through. But, um, but it really now feels like, okay, I've answered those questions and I kind of know where I'm at on that stuff. And now what, right? So for me, it feels like it feels very, very natural. But again, I, I have to, you know, recognize that everybody has a different journey and a different path. I think this book really is probably for people who have dealt with all of those sort of major pillars, major questions in their, in their Christian faith and reach the end of that path and say, okay, now what? Well, then I, I think this book is helpful. Um, if someone's just beginning their journey, m- maybe this book will be helpful, but it might scare them. Like I said, it's funny, it's, this is real. So I have a book promotions team. I got like 20 or so people in this group and you know they're reading an advanced copy of the book to get ready for launch day. And one of the guys in the group, the, the day after I sent him the PDF, about every 20 minutes was messaging me about his reactions to each chapter he was reading. And it just got more and more like, um, <laughs> like he was falling apart, you know, and spinning out of control. I, he was like, man, I'm sweating. I'm, I'm crying. I don't know why I'm crying. And is, is this joy? Is this fear? I don't know. And I'm like, I, I, I after a while I said, man, put it down. Like maybe this is too much for you. I certainly didn't intend you know, to create any anxiety and stress in, in, in this guy uh, or anybody. But again, I think if you're just maybe at the beginning or maybe the middle of your deconstruction journey, there might be some stuff in here that might might pull you or push you a little uh, faster than you're ready for. Yeah, it reminds me of your friend, Derek Webb. Yeah. Derek, uh, I had been a huge fan of Derek Webb during the Cademan Call years and and after and I remember a couple of years ago, he put out an album that had a song called Goodbye For Now. Yep. And I remember the first time I heard that song, it was like he was saying um, goodbye to this idea of God that I've always believed in or thought I believed in, mm-hmm. but also goodbye to the people who will no longer support me because my view of God has changed. Yeah. And I remember crying. Because I feel like I lost something mm. when that declaration was made. I'm no longer the artist that I have been in the past. Yeah. Do you have any kind of trepidation? Is there? Are you nervous about <laughs> launching this little baby into the world? Because this kind of feels like that moment for you. Yeah. No. That's you know you you totally nailed it, Jason. I think Derek Webb uh, is somebody that I would also look at and go, "Yep." Because we when we interviewed him for the podcast years ago. We talked about that, and he was talking about how, as an artist, you know, to be an artist is to be vulnerable and to be honest about the world and, and your own experiences, you know, and, and that's part of what makes your art beautiful and great and, and compelling for people and powerful. And But to do that, sometimes, you, he said uh, almost exactly what I just said, that he knew when he put out cer- certain records that he was going to leave people behind, and he did. He had people write to him and say, you know, I can't go with you, or I'm so disappointed, or whatever, and that's, there's there's a mourning in that. There's some painful, some loss in that. But at the same time, he picked up a new 
audience of people that were like, thank you. This is exactly, this speaks to me. This is where I'm at. And I feel like that's what's happening with me with this book. I, I am a little nervous because honestly, I mean, just deep down, I don't want to disappoint people. Um, I, if there are people that have really loved the Jesus Sun series and they love my blogs and books and stuff, podcasts and stuff, this might, I might lose those, some of those people and I don't want to do that. I don't like that. That's not my intention anyway. But I guess I'm more excited about just being vulnerable, being honest and being real. And I know that by doing that, I am going to speak to the hearts of, of a new group of people that are going to be ready for that. And maybe have already been ready and they're just waiting for someone to write a book like this. Like, <laughs> finally, someone write a book like this. So yeah, it is a little scary for me, but it's, it's, it's so good at the same time. Like, it's, that's not my main emotion. I'm not like, oh, I'm so nervous. I'm so scared. I'm so afraid. I'm a little nervous about it, but I think mostly I'm just really excited to hear what people's, uh, what people think about this. Cause I, I gotta say, there are so many things I packed into this little book. It's, it's funny to me that it's, that it's not like twice as big as it is because I mean, I just jammed in so much stuff that I found so fascinating. Um, you know, there's stuff in here about science, quantum, um, I talk about placebo effect. I talk about idea space. Um, we talk about truth in different cultures and di different, you know, streams of religion and philosophy and, and so much more. I mean, gosh, th there's just so much in the book. And I'm excited about that. Like, I really want to have conversations with people about, oh my gosh, you know, this section in here about frequency or about patterns in the universe, geometric patterns in the universe, or, you know, or about the quantum stuff. Like, I'm so excited to have conversations with readers after they've gone through that part of the book that it, it definitely outweighs any concern or anxiety about, oh my gosh, what if people don't like it? Well, you know, it's like with any kind of art, I think the thing that people have always loved the most about you, Keith, has been your transparency. And so for you to do anything other then speak your mind and be who you are in this moment would almost be a betrayal of what you've been about the entire time. Yeah. And I know there must be a temptation because I, you know, you've shared with me privately some reaction from some well-known readers yeah. that was less than flattering. Yeah. <laughs> but I know there's got to be some temptation to like filter yourself on this. Yes. But I'm so grateful that you didn't, that you're continuing to live in the light and be who you are even when it risks disappointing people. So thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, yeah, that, that is definitely something and without naming names or anything, but um, yeah, I, I did like I always do with a book before I publish it. I send it out to, you know, there's a group of people that I, I respect and I, I kind of feel like in, in, way, in many ways they're like peers. You know, I want to get their reaction. If they really like it, maybe get a quote from them. And they're like, hey, this was a great book by Keith Child. You should read it. And I, I guess I shouldn't say I was surprised because honestly, I, I do know, I guess in hindsight, <laughs> that, that, that some of the people that pushed back on the book that did not like the book, that even told me, Keith, don't publish this book. I understand why. I mean, I get it. I am at, a, I'm not in the place personally where I feel any, any kind of a need to, um, sort of protect Christianity or to defend you know, like the Bible or something. And, um, and some of my friends who I love and respect, and I still consider them people I look up to, they are in places where they kind of do feel that, that that is what they need to do. And God bless them. I get it. That's totally awesome. And I love them 
you know, no less for that. And I even, I even respect, um, the pushback that I got because even, even the pushback I got, to be honest, was in love. It was, it was, you know, people that were concerned for me that I was going, uh, out beyond <laughs> the boundaries of where they personally were comfortable, which is funny, even if they, even if they privately agree with me on some of the things I was saying, but they were like, Oh, Keith, you can't swim out there. You can't go out there. There's, you know, that there's danger there. Don't, don't go out there. It's okay to think about that, but don't say it out loud. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. In some ways. Yes. But in other ways, genuine concern, like, no, Keith, I, I don't feel that way. Or I don't, I don't agree with you on that, those things. And that's okay. Again, I, I, I've never felt like I needed to agree with anybody to love them or, you know, connect with them or, uh, have conversations with them. So, so that's okay. But yeah, no, you're right. Um, getting that email back or having that zoom call, uh, with somebody that I respect voicing their concerns about certain parts of the book. Yeah, it does. It did make me stop and ponder for a bit, you know, just like, Oh, but it was more about like, Oh, well, I get, let me think about what I'm about to do because at no point did I consider not saying it, you know what I mean? Because it is like, this is where I'm at. I, I can't, I can't change where I am at. I, this is just honestly where I, where, what I believe in, where I'm at in, in my journey. And so I can't pretend I don't believe those things. I couldn't even imagine changing the book, uh, in those areas for what, you know what I mean? So, so uh, yeah, I just had to, I, I had to bite the bullet and say, well, here we go. I'm going to cross that line and, and then we'll just see, we'll see what happens afterwards. Yeah. It's almost like there's two different streams of thought about, I don't know what you want to call it, teaching or lecturing or whatever, that especially within the Christian faith. It's, it's almost like there's this group that pretends that orthodoxy never changes. Yeah. And then there's the other stream, which you seem to be in. That's just like, I'm going to share my honest experience. I'm going to share what I'm thinking and whatever comes of that is going to be honest, at least, even if people don't like it. Yeah. And I've always appreciated that about you. But the other side bothers me now more than it used to. Mm -hmm. Because it's like we have these folks who have set themselves up, and, and I don't think it's intentional because they're really good people, as the defenders of orthodoxy. Yes. And to me, it just smacks of the John Piper, MacArthur BS when... Rob Bell puts out a new book, you know? Right. <laughs> well, no, that's exactly right. And I, you know, I get it. I do understand on one level anyway. Uh, and I can't personally relate to it, but I understand it, you know, but yeah, I, as I said, I don't have, I mean, when I left years ago, when, when Wendy and I walked away from, you know, institutional church and we started a little house church and we, and we didn't go under any quote unquote covering of any denomination uh, the church we had, we were part of in Southern California had no statement of faith. You know, it was really just based on, we love Jesus, we love people, let's just go together, right? And really, because of that, I, it's given me so much freedom to ask questions, any question. It's definitely given me, like, I, so I don't feel like I have to, you know, I, I don't, I don't need the approval of some pope or some doctrinal uh, authority or anything like that. So the, uh, that's given me permission. And I uh, see, really, I think this is, this is really all that's happening. I'm not rejecting anything. I guess I should be, we, we should just be clear about this. Like I'm not rejecting Christ. I'm not rejecting, you know, a lot of what, what my DNA, you know, it comes from in uh, growing up as, as someone who believed in Christ and, and affirmed Christianity. And so I, uh, no, that isn't, that isn't really changing so much as I am 
widening my scope a little bit to, uh, or maybe a lot, uh, to include, like, for example, like, to me, the canon isn't something of scripture that I feel like I need to protect. Like, oh, no, no, these are the quote-unquote inspired books and only these. I, I really even say this in the book where I think the canon was a bad idea for a lot of reasons. You know, I think it, it basically told us either overtly or sub, or sub, sub, subvertly that only these are the writings we can consider when it comes to truth or wisdom for our life. And I, I think that was, I, I don't think that's a good idea. I, I, because I'm just in my experience, right? Like I have heard and experienced profound and powerful truth, whether I was reading Black Elk or Rumi or maybe Colossians or Philippians or Ephesians, or whether I was, you know, um, watching a movie or listening to a song or a poem uh, or having a conversation with a friend and, and, you know, genuinely encountering wisdom and truth from the Christ in them being communicated to me. So I'm just widening and expanding my canon, I guess, in some ways, I guess you want to say it that way, use that terminology, um, to include pretty much anything, anywhere I find truth. And recognizing, too, that I guess I have to say that I think Christ and that I think God, if God is God, then God is the God of everything. You know, God is, God is not only the God of the nation of Israel, you know, 6,000 years ago. God is, God is God not only of everyone, not only the God of a handful of people in the Middle East 2,000 years ago or in Rome, right? Uh, or in Carthage or wherever. Like, yes, God was there. Yes, Christ revealed, you know, himself through people and spoke through people all through history, but not only to them, not only to, to the Jewish people or to Christians, but to anyone who searches, anyone who seeks, anyone who look, who, who's longing for truth, right? If you knock, it will be opened. If you seek, you will find. And I believe that is a principle that God has honored to anyone, anywhere who has been searching and seeking. And I'm just acknowledging that. And then that gives me permission to, to receive truth wherever it comes from. All right. So you mentioned Black Elk and Rumi and a lot of our evangelical or recovering evangelical like me listeners may not know who any of those people are. <laughs> um, but, uh, and Tick Knock Han and, and yes. people like that. Yes. Uh, you mentioned, you, you know, you've, you've heard the voice of God or the voice of the universe. And, and, and there's nothing controversial about you and I on a podcast saying, I hear the voice of God in a song on the radio. Right. One of our first interviews that we did together years ago was very much along those lines. So this is not new territory for you. No. But what what is it about the space of the Christian church that makes it heretical to get up and say that publicly from a pulpit when it sounds so reasonable? <laughs> and so, of course, and matter of fact, when we're just having a conversation among friends. Yeah, well, that is, that is a great question. Um, I, well, I think... I think part of it is, it's, it is that sort of that context, right? It is if you're in a church and there is a pulpit and there is a membership role and there is a statement of faith that everyone has to sign and agree and all that. So then to have someone stand up and challenge that in any way really is a threat or is dangerous, right? Because, uh, you know, if you put yourself in the role of that pastor, right? So, 
This is funny because I'm about to go preach at a church uh, this Sunday um, about this exact topic, but this is a friend of mine who doesn't mind if I do that. But so it's rare. It can happen, but it's rare. Um, but, you know, but for, for most pastors to have someone stand up in the pulpit and challenge any of that, right, Christianity as the only true religion or the, you know, the, the New Testament or the Old Testament, the Bible as the only source of truth, or even Jesus as the only expression of Christ. You know, those are radical and scary things. And I think they're scary because the fear is that somebody in the pulpit, somebody, sorry, somebody in the pew might hear that and take you seriously. And the next thing you know, they're not coming up on, they don't show up on Sunday anymore. And where are they? Where'd they go? Oh, well, they listened to the Keith and they read that book he wrote. And now they're like, oh, I can find, I can find God. Um, on the ocean, I can find God in the forest. I'm finding, I'm, I'm having an incredible connection with God and experience with God, you know, in, in silence and meditation in my house or helping my neighbors or, you know, caring for the homeless people down, down the street. And see, now I look at all that. If, if I saw that happen, I would rejoice. I'd say, awesome. That is great. But if you're the pastor of a church and you're seeing people trickle out to go do those things, you think that's bad news. Like, no, 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 no. What are you doing? We need to come on back, right? No, no, no. We, you're straying away. We need to keep this thing going. And like I said, that's what I mean where I, I personally don't have any vested interest in keeping people in a church and keeping them in a pew or keeping them under, you know, the ultimate authority of the Bible or, uh, you know, doctrines, specific doctrines or things like that. So I think that's why it's perceived as dangerous. And to be honest, it, I mean, frankly, it probably is dangerous <laughs> to do that system. But again, uh, I don't see, like when I, when I read numbers that just came out, uh, there was a poll that just came out last week, right? That less people are going to church than ever before. And, you know, Protestant denominations are continuing their 30 year decline. I read those kind of statistics and I'm like, awesome. <laughs> I don't, I don't read that and I'm not like, oh man, that's so sad. Because to me, when I read those kind of statistics, I, what I, what I know is probably going on is that yes, people are leaving church, but I, in my experience, people are not leaving God. Uh, they're just finding God and they're finding Christ, uh, in other ways that actually feed their soul and make them free and give them joy. And for that, I'm really grateful. And so if my book, if someone read my book and decided for themselves one day, you know what? I have permission to follow Christ outside the church, um, to think for myself. Uh, I don't need Pastor Bob to approve what I'm going to read next or what I'm going to think about next or where I'm going to, what I'm going to do with my life or with my time. I would say that's a beautiful thing. That's awesome. And of course, a lot of my friends would say, no, that's horrible. Keith, what are you doing? You're destroying something. But uh, I, in my experience, no. Uh, like I said, you know, we're doing the square one uh, course now for over two years, and and I've seen that that is what people are doing. They're they're walking away from institutional church and theology and doctrines, and they're pretty toxic. And a lot of times for them, getting set free means they don't read the Bible anymore, or they don't go to church anymore. But it, but, but see, that doesn't mean they don't have an even stronger connection with God, and because it. That's what I see. That's the irony. They they walk away from some of those things, but they have a even more, uh, even greater love for Christ than they ever did before, and a connection with God 
that's that's more rich and beautiful than they ever had before. And and frankly, too, sorry, this is a long answer to your question, but um, no, those are good. Yeah, because I mean, really, a lot of this book came out of my conversations with people in Square One, and then we have a there's a second module, Square Two. And then there's a square three group, which is everybody that's been through one and two. And we just get together and have a Zoom call every Sunday, uh, you know, uh, for a couple hours. And, and, and so really a lot of this book, the, you know, the conversations that we had there, um, really inspired this book. Um, and it's, it's in hearing their stories and their experiences and seeing them that for them getting free of toxic theology, ha- this is what it's meant for them. And this is where they have found healing and freedom and, and joy and, and life and a deeper connection with God. When I see that for so many people, walking away from those things gives them freedom and joy, then I, I don't see walking away from those things as bad. You know, I think, well, for, first, again, for some people, because I, I, let me just say again, like we said at the beginning, for a lot of people on their deconstruction journey, they're not at that point yet. And maybe they never will be. I don't want to assume that, oh, this is the inevitable trajectory. So I get that. I understand that. So for some people, they, they may have a really healthy, beautiful fellowship or, or, you know, congregation, uh, that affirms them and, and, uh, all of that. Then great. Yeah. I, I w- I'm not telling you, you have to do that. But for so many people who are going through their deconstruction, uh, reconstruction for them, this is what it looks like. And, uh, that's what it's looked like for me. I remember years ago as a pastor, uh, I feel so bad about this now, but I would rail from the pulpit about parents missing church, taking their kids out of church to go with their kids' travel sports team on Sundays. And from my perspective, it was hurting church attendance and, and interrupting the spiritual development of the young people and teaching people that there's so many more important things than God in life. I feel so bad about that now because, I mean, really, what is a better reflection of the unconditional love of God than being willing to take your Sunday and, and cheer on your kid doing something they love. And you're exactly right. So you put your finger on something that's, that's exactly right. So like I would, I would rather, if I could go back or when I was a pastor too, and I guess this is what you're saying too, right? If you could go back in time, what you would like to be able to do is instead teach from the pulpit the people in your congregation, that they take God with them everywhere. They can't escape the presence of Christ. And so if they're at the grocery store, if they're at the baseball game, uh, if they are wherever they're at, right, Christ is right there and teach them how to experience and encounter Christ wherever they are. And it's not like, because again, we, we act like, and I used to do this, I used to think this way, that, that Jesus lived in this little room behind the baptistry. And when we, <laughs> and when we left church, you know, he's, he's, he's lonely and bored. And where are you guys? Come on back and see me. But why have you abandoned me? <laughs> right. That's how we act. That's how we talk. But it's like suddenly like, no, God doesn't live in this little building. Christ is in all of us. Christ abides in all of us. Again, this is one of the main things I try to uh, emphasize in this book. Like, when I look at these amazing things that Jesus says about this incredible connection we all have, right? Oh my gosh, there's just so many, you know, God is love and all who live in love live in God and God lives in them, right? Or Christ is the one in whom we all live and move and have our being. Or when, when Jesus says in, in the Gospel of John, in that day you will know that I am in the Father and the Father is in me and I am in you. Like, or, or, or another one, um, 
what's this? I think that's in uh, Colossians, uh, or maybe it's Ephesians, because they both kind of play off each other. But I think, yeah, and maybe it's Ephesians, where it says that we are filled with the fullness of, of Christ who fills everything in every way. That means that you and I are filled with the fullness of Christ, and, and this Christ fills everything. That means your baseball game, your bowling alley, you know, the grocery store, your work, sitting, driving in your car, going to the beach. Like you cannot escape the presence of Christ. And that's exciting to me. Again, this is what I'm talking about. I, it's, this is about expanding those borders and boundaries and recognizing their illusions. We've, we've constructed these illusions that, that God is only in that church building or God is only in my faith or only in this book. Um, or only in this statement of faith, or these doctrines. And no, of course not. I mean, the the universe is infinitely massive. And they have this idea that, well, no, you know, Christ only shows up on this one little tiny speck of a planet, on in this one little tiny speck of a solar system, and a tiny speck of a galaxy. And then on that little tiny speck of a planet, only on this itsy-bitsy little pixel, you know, in the Middle East here, or in, the, or in these little scattered pixels, you know, in churches across... North America. Like, come on. No. God is, God feels everything. Christ feels everything in every way. And so for me, these are the kind of beautiful truths that I think uh, are exciting. And they've been setting me free. And I really think this is something that I, my intention is that it would set other people free too. I I haven't attended a church service in two years uh, since COVID. With one exception, that was I was invited to preach at a rehab center. And I did that. Haven't picked up a Bible since that time a year ago when I was preparing to preach. Yeah. But I experience more of God. I, t- I say this all the time. In the sunsets at the beach, yep. in the smile of my wife, in the embrace of my children, than I ever experienced in a church service. And so if when I was locked into that mindset of God can only be experienced here, yeah, it was so... Uh, uh, so wrong, so limiting, so exclusive to the exclusion of everything else. And I'm so grateful for you and people like you who have encouraged us to see beyond that. And this book just busts those gates wide open. One of the things that I'm so grateful that you've done is you've made quantum and quantum spirituality something... Um, approachable for people like me. I can't read somebody like David Bentley Hart. (laughs) Every time I've ever mentioned, or every time I've seen mentioned quantum spirituality, quantum physics, quantum whatever, uh, in the writings of Steve McVeigh or others, it's been so deep and so rich that I can't wrap my mind around it. But Keith, you made it approachable for me. Could we talk just a minute? When you talk about quantum and quantum spirituality, can you unpack that for a minute and help <laughs> folks understand what in the world you're talking about? Okay, yeah. That, and yes, that is one of my favorite parts. It's like almost like right in the middle, middle of the book. Um, we've talked about quantum. Um, well, I will say before you, before I jump into it, so Steve McVeigh, again, like you mentioned his name, to me, he's the guy. Like when I want to know anything about quantum, I go and ask Steve or go read or listen to Steve. And um, when I sent him the book, he was so encouraging. He, he again called me on the phone and was like, man, this is great. And how can I help you with promote this book? And I said, well, could you write the forward? And he was like, you got it. So I was so blessed that he wrote the forward to the book. And But he, he paid me a beautiful compliment uh, in that conversation after he read the book. And he, he said that he really appreciated the way I explained quantum, that I made it simple. Um, so I, that, thank you. That was like a beautiful, that was my goal. And I hope people 
that I that I can make it accessible for people. Um, so quantum, oh man, you're right. It's it's a tough one, but um, so so there are there were these experience experiments that were done a long time ago, really, um, and scientists were really just trying to figure out to answer this question. There's this long long running debate in science about whether uh, light uh, is made up of waves or particles, right? Are there particles of light? Are there, are there waves of light? And, um, so to try to solve this, <clears throat> this answer, this question once and for all, these guys, these scientists, uh, set up this experiment in a dark room and they had this photosensitive paper on the back of the room and the back of the wall. And, um, they had a, a little piece of cardboard, I guess, or metal or something but with these two little slits in it. And then their, their thinking was, well, okay, if light is a wave, then when these waves hit that barrier with these two little slits in it, we know how waves, like water waves, ocean waves, how they behave. They, you can observe how, like, if you make a, a splash over here, that the, those waves ripple outward, and then when they hit that kind of a barrier with the, those two slits in it, then it creates an interference pattern of waves that continue beyond, that kind of start at those slits and continue out, and then when they hit that back wall, uh, the sensitive, you know, stuff to the sensors, you can pick up a wave pattern. And so if, again, this is just their, their, the, the experiment they did. So, okay, if, if we see this wave pattern, uh, then we'll know, there you go, problem solved, it's a wave. So um, they run the experiment, and then they see the wave pattern, like, oh, there you go, problem solved. Um, but then they, uh, they, part of the experiment was they fired these little um, photons, right, which are little tiny sort of bits of light, and they fired them at the, at the screen. And, and by when they were observing the experiment, meaning they're sit, they're watching the outcome, the photons behaved like particles. But when they stopped observing, like if no one paid attention, just came back later, it behaved like a wave. I was like, what the hell's going on? <laughs> so they accidentally discovered something that's, this is the beginning that led scientists in this direction of quantum. So now they had a new question. The question now wasn't, is light a wave or a particle? That was less important. Now the question was, what the hell is going on with these photons that if we look at them, they, they behave one way, but if we don't observe them, they behave a different way. Does the particle know we're watching? Like, that's insane, right? So then they started creating even more elaborate kinds of uh, experiments, mostly to figure out what caused this, but it just kept, they could replicate it over and over and over and over again. And then they found it would, that, um, it wasn't just photons. If they fired molecules, if they fired electrons, if they fired, you know, any sort of, um, molecular level particles at, and it's at, at these, you know, the, the double slit, the same thing would happen. If you observe it, it behaves one way. If you don't observe it, it behaves a different way. And that got pretty elaborate. I mean, I, I can't even go into it how elaborate it got. You can go on YouTube and look, and, and you can see some of these uh, experiments and just look up double slit experiment and you'll see it. But what all of that led to was, was scientists coming to some conclusions that began and are still boggling people's minds. And scientists are really still trying to figure out what the implications of this are. Um, but they're excited about this. And the exciting thing is, is that just to boil it down, what what quantum scientists are beginning to have to admit, because they don't want to admit it, honestly, this is not somewhere they intended to go. But based on the evidence that they're that they're that's being produced as they continue to study uh, the behavior of molecular level, quantum level objects, 
when they observe them or don't observe them, is this, that the universe, and I quote one of the premier, one of the leading quantum scientists in the book, what he said was that after all the study that they've been doing so far, he said that they realize now that it's no longer proper to think of the universe as a great machine, meaning it's just material. It's just, you know, uh, physical things, atoms and uh, molecules. And, you know, because again, scientists for the longest time, that is what they thought, that they, we, we lived in a material universe, that the things like the soul or the spirit or consciousness, uh, that these things weren't quote unquote real because you couldn't measure them. But see, this is the crazy thing. What they're realizing is that this, these quantum experiments, they are measuring consciousness. And that's what's breaking their brains. So now they, anyway, go back to the quote that what the guy said was, yeah, that, that what now what they have, scientists have to, to admit is that it's no longer proper to think of the universe as a great machine. And this is a quote. He says, but instead to think of the universe as a great thought or a consciousness. And then, then this idea flips around that consciousness is the reason why there's anything in the universe. The reason why there is matter in the universe is consciousness. Consciousness had to come first. It's not the other way around. It's not that there was matter, and then out of that, eventually, over millions and billions of years, consciousness popped up. That you could, you can't have anything behave in any way uh, in the laws of physics according to their science, to their experiments, without there being a consciousness, an observer, right? Now, the implications of that are, well, then, if human beings only showed up in the last, you know, 20 minutes of, of all uh, history of the, of the beginning of the universe, um, the universe is billions and billions of years, you know, been around longer than that, well, then, what's the, what consciousness was observing these things happening? Well, I think the, uh, the answer would be obvious, right? It's God. And that's what scares these scientists. When I have read their books and I've listened to their lectures uh, in preparation for this book, um, they will often stop themselves or apologize and say, I know I sound like a philosopher right now. I know I sound like a theologian. <laughs> because it makes them nervous. They don't want to talk this way. Like They feel like they're, it's silly for them to be talking this way. But again, based on the scientific evidence of what they're finding in quantum, they have to, they have to agree. This, these are some of the tenets that, uh, of quantum right now, that everything is consciousness, that everything is connected. It's, it's an illusion that things are separated, that there's separate objects in the universe, that actually all of the separate objects in the universe are expressions of the same sort of uh, quantum field or quantum wave. And again, the implications for that come down to the spiritual level that we are all connected, that there's one consciousness that we all share, right? So again, this goes back to the scriptures I just shared. Christ is all and is in all. All things are made by him, for him, and through him. Nothing exists apart from him. And all these kinds of things. So, you know, that Christ is in you, and Christ is in me, and we, we are all in the Father, and the Father is in all, in all of us. So there is this connection that is beautiful. And again, the, the exciting thing is to see how not only is that truth reflected in, in New Testament Christianity, these are the same truths that are, are reflected in some of the writings of Buddha or Rumi or Black Elk or Socrates or, you know, all of these uh, people. In other words, it's as if they already had inherently this same conclusion, this same knowledge, and the quantum is just verifying it now. That's exciting to me. Yeah, it's exciting to me as well. And what I love that you didn't do, so, so many faith-based folks, when they find some science 
that seems to confirm, you know, the existence of God or Noah's Ark or something like that. Yeah. We, we turn it into um, a bolster f- that backs up our previous beliefs. See, I've proven the Bible. That's <laughs> not what you're doing in this book at all. No. <laughs> you, you're tearing down all of those rubrics and saying, if this is possible, if there's been a consciousness to the universe all along, it really reminded me of Richard Rohr when he released Universal Christ. The Universal yeah, Christ. Yeah. He he said to y'all, I think, on the Heretic Happy Hour, I believe it was an interview y'all did with him, yeah. that he really wanted to name that book Christ Another Name for Everything. Yes. And when you talk about this consciousness of the universe, I'm like, ooh, is that what Rohr was talking about? Oh, yes. The Christ being this thing that holds it all together and existed before the matter was, you know, brought into existence. Uh, it's it's mind-blowing, but it's so, so good. But you are not, <laughs> I just want to be clear yeah. to anybody who's listening who has groaned at every Ken Ham lecture. <laughs> um that that is not what you're talking about here. No, thank you for saying that. Yeah, no, because like what I realize is that yes, you can see elements of, you know, yeah, in the scriptures, there, there are echoes of this kind of quantum truth, you know, that are in the scriptures. But see, what I'm saying is yes, but there are also echoes of this same thing in Buddhism and Hinduism and Native American religion and philosophy and so many other places. So it's like, it's not validating Christianity. It's not validating the, you know, the letters of Paul or the Gospel of John. It's validating all of these, so many other things. So I, I don't think it matters. Again, so I would call it Christ. Richard Rohr calls this Christ, right? But someone from another, you know, uh, stream or, or background might call it Brahma or might call it, uh, you know, the Great Spirit or I don't know. I don't think it matters what we call it. I'm less concerned about that. I don't think God cares about that. I don't think God is like, well, you didn't use the right word or the terminology. Because again, God, if God is God, God is God of everyone and everything in, in the universe. And so, I, again, I, I affirm that different people throughout history and, and time and space have seen these things, have, have intuited these things. So the Spirit of God has revealed it to them. And, and now it's God, the same spirit is revealing it to scientists through a different way. But it's, it's more about the identity of this being. Again, this is the whole point of Sola Mysterium, a being far beyond our comprehension. We do not know when we speak of God, we're not speaking of something that we know. We are speaking of a being that by definition transcends, um, our ability to fully know and comprehend, right? We see through a glass darkly now. One day face to face, but not now, <laughs> not now. Now we see through a glass darkly and we see glimpses. And these are beautiful glimpses uh, that we are getting of this, you know, astounding, phenomenal, transcendent being that we, many of us call Christ. And that's who that is. Yes, it is Christ. But I think it's, it's bigger. You know, it's way, way bigger than our box. And then and quoting Richard Rohr, uh, I, I do this in the book. Richard Rohr has a quote where he says, God doesn't fit into our boxes. So let's not waste any time defending our boxes. And if, if I could do anything, uh, it, it would be like, I, I just want to, I want to get rid of our boxes. Well, I think you've done a great job of that. I, anybody who reads your past work, especially in the Jesus Un series, realize that you tapped in very early on to the idea that sacred cows make gourmet burgers. 
<laughs> and, and you've done a fantastic job of destroying boxes or helping us dismantle them. What are the implications of Sola Mysterium or this idea of the beautiful uncertainty of everything? What are the implications of that for someone like most of our listeners who have been an evangelical and have asked questions, maybe they asked the wrong question and got the left foot of Christian fellowship. Yeah. Maybe they didn't feel comfortable in that space anymore because of who they love or supporting someone uh, in an LGBT plus relationship. Uh, maybe they had questions about the Bible, like our friend Michelle Collins, who started asking questions and they just, they told her there's no room for her right. in the church anymore. Yeah. What are the implications of what you're talking about in this book for people like that? Wow. Well, um, I think, first of all, you've got to be at that spot, right? You, you have to be at the place in your journey where you're like, yep, um, I'm ready for this. This this is where I'm at. Um, I, I've followed this path, and now I'm standing on the edge of the ocean. And there it is. I see this massive ocean in front of me, and it's time to get in the boat. I have to get in the boat and go out there now uh, out and see what's next, what's over the horizon. Um, I, I think the implication, this is my hope, and I, I, I have a whole chapter in the book about this near the end, because I do, this is what, this is what has happened to me. This is what I've seen um, happen to people who have, who have gone through the square one, two, and three groups. It's that you, my, my deepest desire <laughs> for people who read this book is that I hope what it does is that it gives you permission to, to not only read about the sort of mystical, direct spiritual experiences of someone like Rumi or St. Teresa of Avila or Black Elk or uh, Thich Nhat Hanh or, or, or Richard Rohr or anybody. I mean, on one level, that's good, right? Uh, I, I know at, at parts of our journey, we do pick up and read some of these writings and we're inspired. Ah, oh, that's just so beautiful. Look at that. Look at that wisdom. Look at that beautiful truth that this person... Um, you know, discovered and wrote down in this book for me. But see, this is the thing. I feel like, I, and I totally feel this myself, um, I feel like there's got to come a place, Jason, where instead of reading what St. Teresa of Avila heard from this from Christ as she was in meditation or silence or contemplation, um, what are you hearing? You know? Like, that's to me where it starts to get really really powerful and exciting and real because I feel like so often we, we have borrowed spiritual experience from other people. And on one level in your journey, that's appropriate. Sure. Of course you need, you need to hear from other voices that, Hey, I've, I've been there and I've come back and here's what I, here's what I brought back. Here's my souvenir, right? Here's my postcard. Wish you were here, but stop wishing you were there. Go there, right? Go there. You have your own experience of Christ. And, you know, it's okay if it looks different. Again, we're not trying to, to duplicate anything as far as the, the direct experience or outcome, but we are hoping maybe to duplicate the, that experience, that direct connection and experience with God or with Christ. And that's only going to happen if we really do sort of give ourselves permission to Sit in silence, have time in meditation, be, be uh, involved in like uh, contemplative prayer or, or theophastic prayer or something like that. And again, it's going to look different for everybody. We're not all going to sort of get there the same way, and that's okay. But I just want to encourage people, if you haven't ever had those direct experiences with, with the Spirit, with God, or with Christ, what are you waiting for? Stop waiting. Don't wait, right? Go ahead and step out, you know, into that boat and push off from the shore 
and begin to figure out for yourself, what is this like, you know? And I, I, I would just say in my experience, it's just been the most phenomenal thing. It's just, it, it, there's nothing to compare it to. It's beautiful. Yeah. And as beautiful as, you know, the words of the ancient mystics, I mean, Julian of Norwich for me, yeah. um, got me through a terrible time in my life when I could not look up. Mm. I was able to find the unconditional love of God in the pit that I had dug for myself because of the beauty of the words of a mystic that we don't even know for sure if, if Julian was a male or a female, we don't know anything really about Julian other than we have these relics, uh, the, the, these writings. And as beautiful as those words are to me, that's not the really exciting thing. The really exciting thing is the same God, the same consciousness of the universe that communicated with those mystics, that communicates with Richard Rohr, with Rob Bell, with Keith Giles, uh, and Black Elk, and Rumi, and all of the others throughout history wants an interaction with us as well, that we all are equipped to hear that voice. And so the really exciting thing isn't what did God say to Julian of Norwich hundreds of years ago, Yes, but what is God saying to you right now? Absolutely. Oh my gosh, Jason, exactly, exactly right. Um, And so, yeah, that's really kind of the, where I'm hoping people, I mean, one, I really encourage people to have, uh, the courage to step into that, right? So like, you know, something I say in the book is don't settle because so, so much, okay, like what we're just talking about for some people, that sounds scary, right? And I think it's because for some of us, we still have a measure that, that we are holding on to this illusion of certainty, I guess is what I'm saying, that um, holding on to certainty um, about, you know, things in our spiritual life gives us this measure of comfort. But what I'm trying to say in the book is that that certainty is an illusion. I mean, I go out of my way to just like break down one at a time all the things that you think that you quote unquote know, not even just about God, but about your own brain, about what you see with your eyes and hear with your ears and uh, and your own memories. Like all of that is completely, it's an illusion. You don't quote unquote know really almost anything. And so if you, if you can acknowledge that this certainty is a comfortable illusion, but the reality is this exciting, dynamic, unknowable, you know, Christ that's just bigger and longer and higher, wider and deeper than you could imagine. Um, again, that can be scary, but it's true. It's the truth, right? And so don't settle for, uh, I think I say this in the book, don't settle for a glass of certainty when there's an entire ocean an endless unfolding ocean of mystery ahead of you that I believe we are created and intended to enjoy and explore. That's where we're really going to encounter this God who is love, this God who is just transcends everything. So, yeah, I think if we know that certainty is an illusion and if we don't really know, quote unquote, know anything really for sure, then let, you know, let go, <laughs> let go of your fear and your need to be right and all of that and, uh, and step into this mystery because it's beautiful and it's exciting. And to me, this is when my spiritual journey, it's funny because I feel like as, as long as I've been in this journey and all the quote unquote knowledge that I have, again, it's not about any of that. You know, in many ways, it's, I feel like my spiritual journey is just beginning and that is super exciting. As I said, I love this book and I, I've told 
I think I've told everybody who listen, every time you release a book, I'll say this is the most important <laughs> Keith Giles book yet. And I told myself that I wasn't going to say that this time because it's cheesy, but everybody listen up. This is the most important Keith Giles book so far. <laughs> um, and, and I really think that everybody needs to read this book. Um, and it, we're releasing this episode on June 28th. That's the launch day. You can go get the book right now. You don't have to wait a week. You can get it right now at Amazon. Keith, what's your website? KeithJaws.com. That's what I thought. KeithJaws.com will have all the information. You can find him on Facebook. You can find him on Twitter. You can find him on Instagram. He's everywhere. But you can get a copy of this book today. You need a copy of it. As I was reading it, um, I could just hear the naysayers in the back of my brain because that's where they live. They, they stay there. That's the little voice that haunts me in the back of my mind at all times about everything deconstruction-y. Uh-huh. Saying this is going to lead people to agnosticism. Right. That you're, that you're leading people to doubting the existence of everything that they've ever believed in. How do you respond to that? Well, no, I, again, I, I think that is a, uh, a knee-jerk reaction. Uh, that's what people say about the whole deconstruction movement, right? And, and again, if you've gone through deconstruction, I think you would say, no, that's not been my experience because I, I, it's not been my experience and so many people I've talked to, they feel closer. They, if anything, it's drawing them nearer to God and nearer to Christ, not farther away. Now, what they're getting rid of is all the man-made junk that they need to question, they need to doubt, they need to, you know, toss in the garbage. And so, yeah, I, look, who knows? Sure. Could someone read this book and end up, uh, completely endowed and, and becoming an agnostic? Well, of course. I, but I think that here's the thing that happens when people read, you know, Leviticus or, or Genesis or, uh, you know, uh, different parts of the Bible where it's saying, you know, slavery is great and patriarchy is wonderful. So, you know, yeah, there's lots of things you can read that can, lead you down that path. And it depends on the person. I would just say, this is not my intention. It's not my experience. And what I really believe, and as the, as I have questioned, and as I have moved into this deeper mystery, it has only deepened my awareness of a God who is so much bigger, so, so much bigger than I could have imagined. And that's really where I'm pointing people to. This is the whole point of mystery is to be in this place of awe and wonder. And so you can't sit in awe and wonder of nothing. <laughs> You're not in awe and wonder of oh, there's no God. I mean, of course not. The, the whole point, the whole focal point of the book is Christ. And so I'm just encouraging people to take the, uh, take those, like when you go bowling, you know, and you got those little rails on the side for the gutter, take those off. And I know that's dangerous. But, but go on and take those off and, and, uh, experience Christ in, in fullness. Take the training wheels off. Like that can be scary. But again, I think as long as you're headed toward, and this is where I'm, I'm pointing people towards is this beautiful mystery. That mystery is God. And, um, and so I, I, I believe is if you are headed in that direction, if what you are curious about, if what, uh, what you are, uh, being drawn towards is this mystery of Christ in all and the fullness of Christ that fills everything in every way, you won't land somewhere else. I really don't think so. I think you'll just become more and more uh, in awe of how good and how beautiful and how amazing God really is. And that's my intention. And I really believe that that's where this journey is headed. It's so helpful, especially in the times that we're living in, when our certainty 
you know, for a long time, I was certain the Southern Baptist Church was the way, the ones who really had the true gospel. Yeah. And now we're seeing played out that while I was believing that, mm-hmm. the Southern Baptist Church was uh, wreaking havoc on people's lives, covering up horrible sexual abuse and doing it all in the name of Jesus. Yeah. So many of us today are so certain that we're all safer because of guns. Yes. We're so certain that we have to have guns to keep us safe, that we're not willing, that that we are willing to even sacrifice our children Yeah. to feed this certainty that they make us safer. Yeah. Certainty has been so dangerous mm. in the times that we're living in. Now, I understand that there's a lot of folks who have certainty, and that's kind of the, the walls of the house that they hide in. Yes. And that's what makes them safe is having this certainty. But that's not life. No. That's not the life that we're meant to live. Uh, the old cliche says, you know, yes, a ship is safer in the harbor, but that's not what ships are for. <laughs> Love that. Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, yes. Oh, man. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that. Uh, yeah, because um, and I just lost what I was going to say. But yeah, I just agree with what you said. I think that um, we have this addiction to certainty and then we realize that, um, and I, again, I'm, I'll be honest, that's what I'm trying to do in the first half of this book is just totally shake your faith in what you think it, you're, the things you're certain about. Oh, here's what I wanted to say. Um, and I do say this in the book. It maybe would help some people if you're kind of addicted to certainty and you, and you think that certainty is important. Um, I mentioned in the book that, you know, if we look at church history, it's the people that were the most certain that were crucifying their brothers and sisters in Christ or cutting their heads off or burning them alive or, you know, persecuting them because they were, they were so sure that they were right and that other people were wrong. And that certainty gave them permission to do horrible, brutal things to people that they disagreed with when it came to theology, right? Whether that was Christians to other Christians, they considered heretics, whether that was Christians to Muslims and the Crusades. I mean, you just see it all throughout history. That certainty can become something that twists you into a monster that is willing to do horrific, unchristlike things to other people. And again, if you if you've gone through deconstruction, you've experienced a little bit of that, right? Because again, you've been rejected because you disagreed, because you didn't agree with you know the different different beliefs and different doctrines of, of the faith tradition that you were raised in. And you you could you know thank thank God we don't live in a time when they have the authority to burn you alive. But uh, I've, I've been in some conversations with people where I felt like if they had the authority to uh, put me to death for writing these things and saying these things, I think they would. So it's the same kind of spirit. It's the same kind of idea. And I, I don't know. I would, I don't know about anybody else. I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be lumped in with those people that are so right and so certain um, that they believe it gives them permission to condemn other people and attack other people. Um, because they disagree, especially if we know that we we have no reason to be certain about anything. We're talking about a being that's beyond comprehension. We have to have some humility, right? We have to be able to admit that we change our minds. We have to give ourselves permission to grow and mature and change our minds. And yes, I've been wrong about a lot of things. And I'm probably wrong about some things now, and I'll be wrong in the future. And so because of that, let's just let go of this need to prove that we're right. And, uh, and embrace this mystery. I think it, I think it's the, it is the path towards life and, um, healing and wholeness. And not very ironically, I think it's the path towards 
the heart of God. Because again, that's, that's who God is. God is this being that dwells in unapproachable light and in, in, in the, in the, in the mystery. But it's not a mystery that we can't experience. It may be a mystery that we can't explain, but uh, that doesn't mean it's a mystery that we cannot experience directly for ourselves. Once again, the title of the book is Sola Mysterium, Celebrating the Beautiful Uncertainty of Everything. It's available right now. You'll find a link in the show notes for this episode. Uh, Keith, I'm excited about this book. Hope everybody gets a copy of it. I hope not only do they buy a copy of the book, but I hope they go to your Patreon, which we will also put a link in the show notes for and support your work so you can keep writing important books like this. What's next for you, my friend? Oh boy. Um, well, I am going to be doing a, an online course for this book. I'm excited about it in August. <clears throat> um, there'll be a three week course. It's like, it'll be like 1999 and we're going to go super deep. We're going to read through the book together, but we're going to go deeper even than the book goes, um, on some of these ideas. So I'm really excited about that. Uh, I currently I'm, I'm writing a series uh, on my blog. Uh, this is, it's, uh, it's a subscription. Uh, so it's called the inner circle and I'm going through, uh, one week at a time, I'm going through a, the sayings of Jesus from the Gospel of Thomas, and I'm really loving this. It's been so exciting for me. Um, I'm enjoying it, and I, a lot of the other people that have been reading it have been giving me some really great feedback about it. Um, so, if, yeah, if you want to, that's kind of what I'm working on right now. Uh, that will eventually become a book, uh, no doubt. So, if you want to kind of read what I'm doing one week at a time, you're welcome to join me there. Uh, and you can sign up for that at keithchiles.com as well. What else am I doing? Uh, there, well, I mean, I'm always doing something. So I, I want to mention too, I, I have a solo podcast called Second Cup with Keith. And um, I've had a lot of fun doing that. That's been really, really cool. Uh, so if you want to, I just take one topic and do a deep dive into that topic every every episode. So yeah, um, I'm always working on something, man. I am, I am planning it down the road to write a fiction book. Uh, I think I've just made up my mind what it's going to be about. And uh, I'll probably get started on that soon. So yeah, there'll be another book. You know, give me give me another couple of months. Uh, I'll be back to talk about my next book. And, and a couple of months, he means a couple of weeks. But, um, <laughs> you are the most prolific human being on the face of the earth, and uh, we're all so grateful that we get to bask in the light of your <laughs> oh, knowledge, uh-huh. my friend. Uh, I'm so grateful for you. You know, I, I've been saying a lot on uh, social media lately that I feel like I have won the jackpot in the lottery of life. Um, and I really feel that way. I mean, I just wake up every day yeah. uh, with this sense of awe at how good my life is. And, um, you know, m- mostly that's, that's about my, my wife and my kids and this beautiful place that I get to live and the important work that I get to do. But, but man, when I think about my friends and how good they are to me, I definitely think about you. And I'm so grateful for you and your life and your work and your friendship. So thank you, brother. I love you. I'm so grateful uh, for this time that we've had together today. Jason, man, love you too, man. Thank you so much. You've been so good and gracious to me since my very first uh, Jesus Unbook. You've been my biggest fan. I really, I love you, man. I appreciate you. And uh, yeah, I I just, I I love being your friend, even when we're not recording podcasts that we can... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Stay in touch and see how you're doing and things like that. So uh, I'm, I'm definitely in. I'm in. I'm all in, man. See what happens next. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Messy Spirituality Podcast. If you found it meaningful, please rate and review the show on iTunes or your podcast platform of choice. Join the conversation by following the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or joining our listener-exclusive Messy Conversations group on Facebook. 
Finally, check out Jason's weekly Pathios column at MessySpirituality.org. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back soon with another new episode.